Are you or someone you know struggling to have a child? Be empowered, encouraged, and uplifted by attending St. Louis's largest family building conference, Gateway to Parenthood, Saturday, March 9th, 2019. Meet others who have had to travel similar paths to parenthood. Gain knowledge of available options to parenthood, including advanced treatment technologies, third-party reproduction, embryo adoption, and more. Powerful, inspiring presenters, exhibitors, and your chance to win one of many attendance prizes, including a free IVF treatment. Learn more and register or to attend at gatewaytoparenthood.com. And great day to you, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Focus on Fertility. I'm your host, Dale Bader, and today we're going to talk a patient journey through their IVF and actually into surrogacy, and actually he's becoming an author, writing a new book called Flip Flops in Kiev, and we're not talking about going to Kiev in the Ukraine for a beach getaway and wearing those flip-flops, but instead actually going to the Ukraine on a surrogacy journey. On the line with me is author Jay Null. Jay, thank you for taking time out to join me. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about your particular story, because the story started long before you would head off to the Ukraine to complete with some surrogacy. So let's start at the very beginning. You do have a daughter, and she was uh, brought to creation through in vitro fertilization. Let's start back there. Okay. Excuse me. It starts really about, uh, I would say, six months after my wife and I got married, when we wanted to have children right away, because we were 37 at the time, and it wasn't happening. So she had done a lot of reading, as she usually does, went to see our OBGYN, and we did some basic testing there and found out that, well, it wasn't off the charts in terms of infertility. There were some potential issues there that we needed to go see a specialist about, a reproductive specialist. So we went to a local doctor here who was wonderful and went through IUI and IVF and did that a few times. And then ultimately, about a year and a half later, our daughter was born. So that was obviously wonderful. But we always wanted to have at least a sibling for her. And knowing what we knew then, we got right to work about six months after our daughter was born, doing more rounds of IVF. And at this point, it was leading really down the path of diminishing returns. We just weren't doing as well. In fact, the results were getting worse and worse. And we had several miscarriages. I believe there were six or seven after our daughter was born. Those were also getting progressively worse to the point where we finally said, okay, that's enough. We, we just can't keep doing this. It's, it's, it's going to inflict long-term harm on my wife. So at that point, I'll be honest, I, I sort of resigned myself to the fact that we were going to have one child, and I was okay with that because she's a wonderful child. But my wife, again, true to her nature, kept working at this. And before I knew it, we were going home to see her family in Vancouver, British Columbia for Christmas. And she told me that she had arranged a lunch with the owner of an international fertility agency. And I thought, okay, I'll sit through this lunch and see what happens. I was skeptical because I had no idea what this was even about. And we had briefly looked into surrogacy in California, but after years of IVF treatment and really grinding in as much revenue through my business and through her work as we could to pay for that, we simply could not afford what it cost to do a surrogacy attempt in California. So I dismissed this as a concept. And we sat down with this person, and he told us about all of his 
successes with surrogacy and all this other stuff, and I finally interrupted and said, wait a minute, that's great, but unless this is free, I'm not <laughs> Because we had always agreed, my wife and I, we're not going to go into debt for this. That was our sort of Rubicon that we weren't going to cross. And he said, well, it's nearly free. It actually wasn't, but he said, we do this in Ukraine because it costs about 20 to 25% of what it would cost in the United States. And again, I became even more skeptical then because I knew almost nothing about Ukraine. And I knew even less about surrogacy, but it just seemed on its face a little off to me. One of those too-good-to-be-true moments, right? Right. (laughs) I just said, okay, hold on. There's a war going on over there. I know that. They just overthrew their government about a year and a half ago violently. I know that. And how do we know any of this is even legitimate? You know, I was I was quite blunt with him, and <clears throat> excuse me. Frankly, he had all the right answers. He said, "We've been doing this for years. One of the reasons we go to Ukraine instead of other countries around the world is, frankly, a lot of other countries were starting to outlaw this because of the corruption involved in a lot of these surrogacies. And you know, the only way you can even get your child, which is what we thought we were getting at the time, was one maybe home is through a, a DNA test that is done in the United States and worked through the U.S. Embassy. Otherwise, this is just not going to work." So that, I guess, not convinced me, but persuaded me to, to look into this further. And that night, my wife Tiffany and I talked, and she can be persuasive as well. So I decided, okay, let's let's at least give this a try. What? Why not? <laughs> it's been crazy enough as it is. So uh, we went over there the first time, did the whole IVF thing over there. But uh, I, frankly lost track of it in terms of my thought because the first two attempts did not work. And we had several eggs, uh, fertilized, uh, I'm sorry, fertilized embryos at that point. And about two months after our last, or our, I should say our second attempt, we were done at that point. I was done. That's it. This is enough of this. Let's just live our lives now. And we, we had told the clinic there to destroy the remaining embryos, of which there were three. And about two months later, Tiffany says to me, do you know if we ever got those embryos destroyed because we never got a bill for it? So I emailed the international agency owner and said, hey, what happened here? Are we done? Or can we get a bill? I'd like to just have some closure and be done with this. And his response was, well, let me take a look over at the clinic and see what happens. About two days later, he got back to us and said, guess what? The director of the clinic, since you were over there, left and somehow... A, B, C, D, your embryos fell through the cracks, they're still there. Now, as it turned out, it wasn't that much more money to try to do one more implantation with the remaining three than to destroy them, so we just looked at each other and said, well, why not? <laughs> at this point, I mean, what do we have to lose except a few extra hundred dollars? And, you know, after years of all of these ART attempts, I'm sure you and your audience are fully aware of what we're talking about with five, six hundred dollars extra. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a queen, it's a deck chair off the Queen Mary. So we gave it a shot, and lo and behold, about three months later, we were pregnant with twin boys. Wow. So <laughs> how did the, the whole steps involve in doing surrogacy over in the Ukraine? You mentioned you sat down and you, you talked with the, the agency, the international agency, but then how many trips did you have to go over there? Twice. We went over there to do the initial IVF and to what I like to jokingly refer to as negotiating the baby contract. <laughs> and <clears throat> also we had to register as a business. I can back up and kind of explain what needed to be done over there. 
our first trip over there, obviously we had to do the same IVF thing that you do here. But we also had to register as a business in Ukraine because unless you do that, you are not, you don't have legal standing to execute any kind of valid contract. In order to do that, we had to prove with an apostyle document from Hawaii, which is where my wife and I got married, that A, we were married, and B, that we were heterosexual because those are the only people in Ukraine who can do surrogacy. It's, uh, they have some pretty strict requirements there. So we did all of that, and then we met the surrogate, and it actually turned out to be a different surrogate than the one who gave birth to our twins because our second attempt did some temporary damage to her, and we didn't want to wait. But we met her, and we, we negotiated all the terms of what was going to be going on during the pregnancy and everything else, which was no small feat. My wife had already gone home by then, and I was left there to do all that because I have a law degree. Why not? I guess that makes me qualified to do all this. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, that entire meeting, which I discussed in the book, is, was, was one of the more bizarre experiences of my life because I didn't understand a word of anything that anybody was saying. And we did all of that, and that was it. We, I went home, and we waited to see how things worked, much like you would if it was uh, a surrogate or even your wife here. You know, it was the five days, put them in, go two weeks, have a test, see what happens. Now, was all the... Go ahead. I'm sorry, I was going to say, was all the communication then back and forth between you and the agency? Were they kind of handling everything for you? Yes, we we really never spoke directly to any of the surrogates except for the, the first one during that meeting and the one who gave birth to our twins. We met for the first time the day before they were born. And the, the agency handled all of the, they liaison between everybody because neither of the surrogates that we dealt with spoke a word of English. And I spoke maybe one word of Ukrainian even after we left the second time. So that, that's, uh, that, that, that was good because I don't know how we would have managed, managed it otherwise because there really aren't a lot of people over there that speak English. And it's very difficult, at least for me. I can speak some Spanish. My wife can speak some French. But we're grounded in the Romanesque languages, and that's not what's spoken there. It's, it's Cyrillic. And one of the overriding themes that I talk about on my site and my book and then anybody who listens to my stories is for the first time since I was maybe four years old, I was completely and totally illiterate. I couldn't read any street signs. I couldn't read, I couldn't read anything. When they handed, us, handed me the baby contract, I instinctively looked for my name. I couldn't even find my name. They had to show it to me. So wow. There was a lot of uh, language barrier there, which uh, was a challenge all the way through the process, especially when we were over there and our, our, our sons were born and we were in the hospital. That was quite something. <laughs> so for those of you that are listening, and uh, you can join in while we're going through the podcast, if you're at your PC or actually after the podcast as well, the web address where you can actually read some of the the journeys that Jay is talking about is available at flipflopsinkiev.com. And so let's continue on. So just a little over a year ago, your twins were born. What was that like? Because my envisionment of the Ukraine, you mentioned one, it had been in the news with regards to war. Were, did you ever feel unsafe of being in Kiev itself? Uh, not necessarily unsafe because the battle, the combat, was a good 150 miles or so east of Kiev, but you definitely knew something, something was happening, meaning I... I walked into, because I didn't know what any of the signs said, I walked right into a couple of military marches and serious drills. I looked outside our apartment window one night after we'd gotten the boys out of the hospital, and there was a, there was a nuclear warhead parked right outside our window and a, and a whole battalion of tanks that came rolling right after it. 
there were the, the military presence was ever present and it's just not something that you know we in the United States are accustomed to so there was a lot of uh, anti-Russia propaganda I, again I don't know what it said <laughs> but I knew it was anti-Russian propaganda because there were pictures of Putin with like, you know like devil's horns and circle flashes and all that stuff going on and yeah it was it was definitely a heightened sense of urgency there that you, you couldn't necessarily articulate or at least I couldn't because I don't know what anybody was saying but you sensed it you just sensed that the, the things were things were definitely tense we were there during the Ukrainian Independence Day and of course during that whole celebration uh, I should mention that our apartment was a block from the presidential palace and the main square right in downtown Kiev where if anybody remembers when that overthrow of the government happened all those videos were taken there that's where all those people were killed so we were right there and sure enough I was home in the middle of the afternoon home I always laugh at that term because I was doing laundry see the state hospital where the boys were born and my wife was staying you don't get linen so you have to wash your own sheets and towels in the, for the hospital rooms because they don't supply that for you so I came back to the apartment and was doing my laundry in Russian, which in and of itself is a story, and doing some work because I was working through all this. Uh, because I, thankfully, I'm, I can, I'm an internet guy, so I can do work from wherever. All of a sudden, I started smelling smoke, and I didn't think much of it. And I look out the window, and people are not scattering in a panic, but definitely getting away from what was going on. Again, no idea what was happening. About two hours later, I have all these Google alerts on my phone. A couple of guys from Chechnya, who are always the rabble-rousers over there, threw a couple pipe bombs into the crowd that didn't kill anyone, but they definitely put a scare into everybody. So that's wow. just... I don't want to make it sound like, you know, this is some kind of dystopian society. It's not. It's just very, very different than, than what, say, you and I are used to in St. Louis or San Diego. And between the two of us, my wife and I have been all over the world and pretty much Antarctica is the only continent we haven't covered. But in many ways, I've never been anywhere more foreign than Ukraine. And it's interesting, because I've been to Europe, and I've been in other locations as well, and in most places you can find somebody or find something in English, and from everything I can pick up uh, reading all the materials that I've had a chance to read before the podcast, it's like you came across nothing in English. Almost nothing. What I will say is there was, between the first and second time over there, that was about a year and a half between, the second time there were just a, just a very few little sprinkles. I mean, just a very few. I mean, maybe a, a street sign here or, uh, you know, a McDonald's, which I didn't find the first time there, which, by the way, over there, it's, it's all the rage in Kiev is McDonald's. Um, but, we're, no, it, it, for the most part, and I mean by that 99.9% of the time, there was nothing. I mean, there was nothing that indicated anything. So <clears throat> when you try to go find a place to eat or grocery shopping, that, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, yeah, a little dry out here. Or, um, or using the bathroom, as I read on, on one of your blogs. Yes, posts. yes, that, that, true, that, that, and, and the thing is, <laughs> you did read, that was, uh, that was the first trip over there, uh, that you don't know those different things are coming. You know, you don't think about how am I going to figure out to use the bathroom or do laundry or buy groceries or 
uh, get an Uber or whatever it is, all the basic things that we do every single day that you just are, are extreme challenges. So let alone having twins. <laughs> but it's, it's something that I just adapted by figuring out certain places to go. Okay, I found a grocery store. It's a nice one. I'm going there for everything. Uh, okay, I, I figured out how to use Uber and how to load up Google Maps to wherever I'm walking to before I leave the apartment and just you know, kind of have it saved on my phone because you never know if you're going to get online. And just I learned landmarks because I couldn't read anything. Okay, there's the big building with the red dot on the side. <laughs> and you, you just kind of figure things out as best you can from there. It, it, it's really something to have all the things that you take for granted in terms of your ability to read, write, and just know how to do things removed from you. Because the first time we were there, we were basically visitors. You know, I stayed, she was there for the first night or two with me, but after that I was in a hotel. Our service had a car pick us up and drive us around everywhere. I pretty much ate in the restaurant at the hotel every time, and that was it. I was only there for five or six days. But the second time over there, not only, not only were we living there as almost residents, we had an apartment, uh, an address, and everything else, we had children there. So it was... You're definitely not a tourist anymore when all that's happening. So let's talk about your twins. They were born a little over a year ago over there, mm-hmm. and there was a bit of a journey. So not only did you get through the surrogacy and you got to the successful end of having the babies born, but the journey didn't stop there. No, no. No, it was quite a ride to get to, to get home. The, the day after they were born, they brought uh, the boys into our hospital room just to spend some time with them. And one of them started aspirating after we fed them. And I didn't know what was going on. And all of a sudden, I sort of flagged the nurse down. But again, we could almost speak nothing. We could almost not communicate at all because they didn't speak English. We didn't speak Ukrainian. A few of them were Russian. We couldn't we don't speak any more Russian than we do Ukrainian. And I wouldn't have even known the difference <laughs> between the two and hearing them. But they came in, took the, uh, our son, and next thing I know, they rushed him back into NICU and... They allowed us to see him a couple hours later, and I never saw more tubes than a human being in my life. And nobody could explain to us what was happening. And that's kind of where I got towards the edge of sanity. Because right. Somebody better get their rear ends over here now and figure and tell me what you know is going on, or I'm going to lose it. You've gone through this whole process, and now to have your child there with all the tubes and not knowing what's going on. I no can't idea. imagine the agony. I. My babies did go through the NICU, so I understand that part, but I could at least mm-hmm. talk with the doctors and talk to the nurses and get an understanding of what was going on. And here you are in this, you see something, but you don't, can't communicate anything. No, no, and they, they, the, the, the way the care is administered there is different than it is here, obviously. Not only is it state-run for the most part, but my wife is a very high-level consultant in the healthcare industry. And that's what she does all day is help healthcare organizations provide care and, and, and streamline their operations and everything else. But uh, in the United States, you have to have interpreters available so that uh, people can get their basic medical updates. So there were no, there were no translators there. We had to wait for the agency rep to, to, to get there, and that didn't happen immediately. And finally, uh, after several pretty intense voicemails later, she got back to me and said, I'll be right over. And... What we learned was that uh, our son, Mickey, had been born with pneumonia. And it was a pretty bad case, but obviously they caught it pretty early. 
and it, it was going to be okay as long as there are no further setbacks. Now, those first few days were pretty hairy because mm-hmm. it could have gone either way at that point. And it was utterly devastating to not be able to touch him, hold him, interact with him in any way. They let my wife hold him a couple times. They wouldn't even let me in the NICU at that point because they weren't the only babies in there. Mm-hmm. And that was always hit or miss as to whether they were going to try to shoo me out of there. So, and again, we don't know what they're saying. We can't obviously understand what their policy is. But it was, it was about a week later they, they pulled him off of intubation and he came back to us. And that really, as I think I stated in the website, of all of this and frankly of all of anything I've ever experienced, that was the most terrifying week of my life because you don't know if he's going to live or die. You don't know what kind of care he's getting. You don't know what they're doing or, or, or any of that. And you're just not getting that information as you go through the process on a regular basis at all. So the, the ignorance there was something that, like I said, drove me to the brink of insanity, it seemed, a few times, because I just didn't know what was happening, and no one would tell me. So that, so, was, that was very difficult and very dark, and uh, it was very much glorious when they brought him in and handed him to us after he had recovered. If you've been trying to start your own family and haven't had success, you're not alone. Millions of people just like you are experiencing the same very personal and painful frustration. Infertility affects men and women equally. The Missouri Center for Reproductive Medicine, MCRM Fertility, can help. MCRM accepts most insurance and you don't need a referral. They offer the most advanced science and technology, including exclusive techniques and the embryoscope. Check them out at mcrmfertility.com. Well, it's just about time to bring those babies home to the United States, but we're going to conclude this episode one of Flip Flops in Kiev. We will conclude his entire story of how he brings the children home, yet still more journeys lie ahead and even some speed bumps. So you want to make sure you tune into that for episode two next week when we will conclude the Flip Flops in Kiev story. And you can make sure you can follow us by tuning in to us on our website at FocusOnFertility.net, and also on the major podcasting sources such as iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Podcast One, and the TuneIn Radio Network. Until we can conclude the Flip Flops in Kiev story next week, we're wishing you the very best on your fertility journey.